For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext from greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you Not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had come, become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning both to those of you here in the sanctuary and those of you worshiping in our fellowship hall service. We are spending five weeks working through the idea that grace changes everything about what we do here. And we're working through it particularly in light of our mission statement, making disciples who make a difference through grace-filled worship, community, and missions. Now, we're on the second of those three this week, grace-filled community. And if I haven't met you yet, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here, and I oversee all our community ministries So both my job, but also my passion, my drive, is to find ways that every one of us could get connected at McLean Presbyterian Church into a community that would transform us. The text we're going to look at to think about that this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's what you heard read. The reason is because grace changed everything for the church in Thessalonica. Grace was the reason their church began It was the reason their church continued, and it formed them into a community. And so what we learned from 1 Thessalonians 2 is that gospel community can transform us, just like it transformed them. That gospel community can transform us, just like it transformed them. And we're actually going to use the same sermon outline we used last week. Last week it was worship. What is it? How do we do it? This week it's the same thing, just community. Community, what is it? How do we do it? So let's pray together and let's look at God's word. Father, we pray that as we come to you, that you would work through this text, that you would work through our thoughts and our minds, spirit, that you would open us up to be transformed as we look at your word together. We pray that you would take these words and make them not mine, not even ours, but make them in in a real way yours, that you would work through them to change us, 
to make us different. We would pray that you would do that for our good, but even more for your glory, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first question, community, what is it? Well, it's one of those things that everybody has an innate sense of it. You just sort of know what it means. And almost everybody even has an innate sense to know when it's there or know when it's missing. But it can be hard to put a fine point on exactly what it means. You might say, well, community is people gathered together. But if a bunch of us gather together somewhere to watch a play or to go to a movie, well, that's a gathering, but it's, it's not community in any real sense. And you might say, well, it's people gathered together for a common cause. But you know what? I've been to a lot of classes in my life, and very rarely have they been communities. And we know at some level community needs to be more than just people gathered together, even people gathered together for the same purpose. That there, there needs to be some sort of connectivity, ideally a warmth, a connection. There's something else going on with community. And, and we're almost innately wired to want community and to find community. This is why communities can form around so many different things. If you're a fan of the 80s, it's the place where everybody knows your name. If you're a college football fan, it's that group on game day. Or it's the people you do a book club with. Or it's, you know, the folks that you smoke cigars and play poker with. Or it's the softball team. We form community around all sorts of different things. And that's good. And there's a great thing to be a part of community like that. But the question we're asking this morning is slightly different. What does it mean to be a grace-driven, a gospel-centered community? Because a church isn't any of those things. A church isn't a poker game. A church isn't a softball team. A church isn't a political party. A church isn't a book club. A church is something different. What is it that would make a grace-filled community? What would be distinctly so? And when we do that, we realize there will be a lot of echoes of all these other communities in a church community. They're not entirely different, but they're also not entirely the same. What is it that would make the difference? Well, if we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, we see two things. We see sharing the gospel and sharing lives. So let's think about this. Sharing the gospel. If you were to flip over to the book of Acts, chapter 17, you could read about the birth of the Thessalonian church. And you would find out that the church there was formed up of Jews and what the scripture says is Greeks. Greek being a catch-all term for everybody who was not Jewish but was culturally Greek means there were many different nations in the Thessalonian church, many different ethnicities. It was also formed of men and women. So what connected the Thessalonians together in this church was not racial, it was not ethnic, it was not gender. Instead, it was this thing called the gospel. Look at the first four verses of our text. You know, brothers, <clears throat> that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or from impure motive, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So what is this thing, the gospel? Well, if you do any kind of study, you would find out that in fact the word we translate gospel it's just a different way of translating the Greek word you would normally translate as good news. And so the community of the Thessalonian church was united in the good news. Well, good news of what? 
It's this simple piece of good news that if received will transform everything about your life. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That 2,000 years ago, the gospel, the good news, is that God himself became man in the incarnation, not ceasing to be God, but becoming fully man, lived a life, ministered, and then died on a cross for the sins of the world. And you think, how can that be good news? That sounds horrible. And it is horrible until you realize it's good news for those of us who know we're sinners. That as we've even confessed in this service, we day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, lifelong, we sin in thought, word, and deed. Now, some of us do it big and bold. Some of us do it small and subtle. But it's common to the human condition that we have this self-focus. We have this sin focus. And the scriptures say the wages of sin is death, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has died in our place. And then that is good news indeed. And the great news is that three days later he rose from the dead. That he ascended into heaven, having conquered death, not simply died for us, but having died to conquer death itself, and that we wait for the time when he will come back, body, just as he left. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what we stake our lives on as Christians. And that gospel forms us into a community. A community that follows a message and a message about a person. You know, different communities have different standards for entry. In some communities, you earn your way in. Um, My high school cross-country team, the top 15 runners were called Team Victory. And you earned your way onto Team Victory with your time. And if you got that sweatshirt, you wore it proudly. Other communities, you buy your way in. You get enough money that you can get yourself into the club. Some communities you're born into. Some communities you impress the right people to get voted into. What brings you into a gospel community? What brings you into a gospel community is one thing and one thing only, and it's grace. It's in fact, paradoxically, knowing that you don't deserve to be in the community. The church as a community is open to anyone and everyone who says, I know I'm a sinner, I know I deserve no heaven, and I'm saved by God's grace. You cannot give enough money, you cannot do enough good works, you cannot attend enough church, you cannot behave enough, you cannot do enough bad stuff. None of this stuff gets you to the kingdom of God. It's the community of people who in fact are united in one thing and one thing only, which is we know we can't afford the ticket. Because the ticket is Jesus Christ of infinite worth. It's kind of like this. Um, When I started traveling the first time when I worked in management consulting... Um, If you don't know this, by the way, you hear about business travel and it sounds so good and glamorous until you actually do it and you realize it's terrible. (laughs) Nobody likes to travel for business. Now, the perks help, the airline clubs and the seats and this and that, but that only helps. It doesn't make it worth it. Now, your first year of consulting, you haven't built any of that status yet, so you have all the travel, none of the perks, and so it's just terrible. And so I'm sitting in O'Hare Airport in Chicago on a summer afternoon when the thunderstorms roll in. Now, if you've ever done this, you know it means that I'm now going to be bonding for a quite long time with this cheap vinyl seat that I'm sitting on in the waiting area. It's hot, the air conditioner doesn't work right, it's humid. Um, There are about 25 of us trying to get to one power outlet. Um, Internet is barely there if it's there at all. 
you know, I'm breaking out from the fast food restaurant right next to the gate. Now, across the hall, I could see the promised land. It was called the United Club. Nice big windows so you knew what you were missing. It was air-conditioned nicely. There were nice people who would come and tell you when your flight's about to go so you didn't have to stress about it. All the food you wanted, every pampering thing out there. The only problem was I didn't have the status to get in. I was looking across the hall of O'Hare Airport looking at Canaan, but I didn't get deserve to go. And so as I sit there eating my heart out, one of the partners happens to walk up. He looks at me, looks at that, goes, dude, we're not waiting here, come on. We walk across the hall, and we're checking in, and the lady asks me, she says, so what's your member number? And I think, well, I know my member number is not going to get me in here. I don't have that many miles. I'm like, uh, uh, and he looks, he goes, he's with me. She goes, oh, okay. I got in on the credit of another, not myself. Now, a bunch of you are in the United Club. And eventually, I got enough miles to get in the United Club for them to say, well, Mr. Fullove, please come on in and have a seat. But the point is, the kingdom of God isn't like that. You never get enough miles. It doesn't matter how many times you give them money. It doesn't matter how many times you show up. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. That's an unending merit treadmill, and it's the opposite of grace. We get in because Jesus says, she's with me. That's a community united around the gospel. And if you look more closely at 1 Thessalonians 2, you realize something else remarkably interesting. The gospel came to them through shared lives. If you look at how the apostles brought the gospel, look at verse 8. So you have Paul and Silas and Timothy, the three authors of this letter. They say, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. In other words, the gospel is shared not through just a bunch of words. The Thessalonian church was not a project that the apostles embarked on. It was a life shared together. The idea is sort of like riding a bike. You know, you don't learn to ride a bike by reading the manual and reading about riding a bike. You learn to ride a bike by doing what? Riding a bike. You don't learn community by reading about it. You don't learn community by thinking about it. You learn community by doing it, by getting in there. That's what verses 1 to 7 are all talking about. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Thessalonica. Paul says in verse 2 that, you know, we endured much much toil, much trouble, Acts 17 tells us it was actually riots from people who were trying to stamp out the message that Paul was preaching. People were dragged around by mobs because they were part of the church in Thessalonica. They were, had money extorted from them by town authorities. Verses 9 and 10 tell you that the apostles worked themselves to the bone day and night so they would be able to freely proclaim this gospel. It was difficult to be a Christian in Thessalonica And into that difficult situation, the apostles poured not just their message, but their lives itself. These guys were not a project. They were a family. They were sharing meals. They were sharing troubles. They were sharing concerns. They were sharing joys. That's what Christian community is. It's shared lives. And shared lives can transform everything. Um, When I first came to this church a long time back, There were a bunch of us, probably 15 or 20 of us, who would always go camping about four or five times a year. 
And one time, one of my other friends, I won't tell you his name because um, it would embarrass him. He's one of the few from that whole group who's still here at the church. But he and I were riding out late to this camping trip because I'd had to fly back in from where I was doing my client work. And he invited a third guy to go with us. So this guy's in the back seat. And this guy was just an awkward man. How you doing? Fine. Oh, okay. Well, how was your day? Good. Um, how's your family? All right. You know what? I'm just going to go over here and talk to somebody else because this is just really hard, right? So we've invited this guy. He rides out with us. We get there. He runs off to figure out, fill up his water bottle, and the whole group rounds on my friend and me, and they look and they say, why did you bring him? He's so awkward. And I was so proud of my friend, I could almost bust because my friend looks back at them and he goes, and how do you think it's going to ever change if we don't hang out with them, huh? That's gospel community that changes lives. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to set you up and do the typical preacher trick where at the end of the sermon I say, oh, by the way, that was really me. No, it wasn't. It was really the guy in the back seat. But 15 years before, it had been me. As a sophomore in college, awkwardly trying to figure out how to get along with people that I didn't know how to talk to and I didn't know how to hang out, a different friend had taken me along and he'd said, I'm going to teach you how to hang out with normal people. You got to understand, I'm a nerd. I've embraced it. I'm good with that. I own who I am now. Back then, I didn't know how to own it. And he said, here's, I mean, and this guy, he did own it. He owned the entire scene. So he said, here's what we're going to do. For a semester, you're going out with me every time I go out. And he taught me how to play pool with guys. He taught me how to hang out and just give people grief. He taught me how to knock it around. He said, this is normal life. And my life changed because somebody said, you're coming with me for a whole semester, three or four nights a week. Life change happens when communities are shared. Life change happens when people get in there together. You realize this was Christ's method, right? I suppose he could have saved us from our sin any number of ways, but how did he actually do it? He left the fellowship of God the Father and God the Spirit and became incarnate as a human being, walking our life with us found 12 dudes, and he said, follow me. He didn't say, read this. He didn't say, do this. He said, follow me. 13 guys walking around for three years, and then a bunch of Galilean fishermen changed the course of history. Why? Because lives lived together are transformative. What is gospel community? It's grace-driven community in the gospel, lives together. Now, second question, how would we do that here? How would we involve ourselves in community at McLean Presbyterian Church? Well, here's what it is for us. Here's our philosophy of community. It's real connections with small groups. Real connections with small groups. Now, by saying that, that's not the only way you could do community in a church. We're not trying to judge any church who does it differently than ourselves, but we're also recognizing that practically in our church, this is about the only way we can do it. Because you just can't get connected with 1,200 to 1,400 people on a Sunday morning. It just doesn't work that way. But you can take 15 or 20 and start building the type of gospel relationship that they had in Thessalonica. To where if you don't show up at church, somebody actually does notice. Because they're looking for you. To where if you're having trouble with your kids, they know it. Because you've shared lives. To where if something goes wrong and you're in the hospital, somebody knows to come visit you. You can build it, a life on life, a place where we know each other, a place where we love each other, a place where we serve each other, 
And the challenge is to get a small group and do that together. And our prayer for our groups, really our prayer for our entire church, is that our culture of care for each other would be marked by three things, all from this passage. That it would be tenacious, that it would be authentic, and that it would be vulnerable. Look back at the passage with me. Let's look at each of these. First, that our care for each other would be tenacious. Look at what the apostle says, verses 1 and 2. He says, you know how bad it was. You know how hard this was. Remember, Acts says they were almost mauled by a mob for the sake of bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians. But they persevered. They worked themselves, verses 9 and 10, to the bone day and night so that they could bring this message. Paul even goes further. He invokes the image of a father. Now understand, in the ancient world, one of a father's responsibilities was to make sure to care for the education of his children. So in invoking the image of father, Paul is saying, we taught you to persevere in this. We taught you to be tenacious. If you've had kids, or if you will have kids, you have to learn to be tenacious educationally. Sooner or later, it gets hard. And when it gets hard, you have to figure out how to push through the difficulty, how to lean in, how to not give up just when it gets difficult. Paul says, we spurred you on in faith like a father spurring his children on. It's a tenacious care for each other. But you know what? A tenacious care, if it's not bounded by the other two, can become really more like a driven mad. You know, it becomes like the uber soccer dad, just screaming and pushing the kids. Because tenacious care has to be matched by vulnerable care. Look what else Paul says. He doesn't just say, we were a father to you. He also says, we were a mother to you. We were a nursing mother. He takes the image that from almost any culture is the most tender image out there, the most loving image out there. And he says, we were a mother, nursing you, bringing you along, caring for you. There is a vulnerability here, an honesty, a connection. I had a guy in college, I remember, who just failed at this really badly. Um, For whatever reason, he decided that God had called him to press into my life to disciple me in evangelism, to to push me about sharing the gospel with people. Now, in one sense, that's not bad. You've just heard me say we need to be tenacious. And so he was taking this introverted guy and trying to push me into situations where I would tell people about Jesus. And you know what? I've dedicated my life now to telling people about Jesus. But as time went by, I found myself pushing him further and further away and stiff-arming him and saying no more and more often. And it took several years after college before I finally figured out why, but eventually when I looked back on it, I realized because he was tenaciously pushing into my life, but I never saw a bit of his. And it was a complete one-way street. He was ready to say what I needed to change in, but I didn't even know what bothered him. I didn't know where he feared. I didn't know where he hurt. There was no vulnerability. And that one-way street eventually made me just say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not dealing with you. We need a tenacious care. We also need a vulnerable care. But even that's not enough because there are some people who are very vulnerable and they're very tenacious and they just manipulate you. Look what else the apostles say, verse 3 to 6. They say, you know that we were straight up with you. You know that we were honest. The apostles don't even need to convince the Thessalonians of how they behaved when they lived with them. They say, you already know it. You know that there was nothing here except true authenticity. I remember one thing and one thing only from geology class in college. My dad and mom are here, sorry. Um, 
That said, it was 20 some odd years ago, so one thing's probably not that bad. Um, <clears throat> here's the one principle I remember from geology class. What you see on the surface is just that and nothing more. If you're looking on the surface, you see a hill or a stream or a tree or a river or whatever, that tells you absolutely nothing about what's going on under the surface. If you want to know what's going on under the surface, you can only dig down to see what's real under there. That's authenticity. Digging far enough down that people don't see your Facebook life. They don't see your Washington, D.C. cleaned up impression. They don't see your resume. They see you. The whole bundle of contradictions and fears and worries and stresses and agonies, that's authenticity. That's a real person. And it's true of all of us. Authenticity is showing it. Our prayer is that we would have all three of these, that we would be tenacious, we'd be authentic, and we'd be vulnerable. I mean, imagine if you have only two of the three. If somebody's authentic and vulnerable, they're not tenacious, they're just going to give up on you when it gets hard. If somebody is tenacious and vulnerable, but not authentic, they just manipulate you. If somebody is tenacious and authentic, but not vulnerable, it's that one-way street that eventually we just go, "Uh uh-uh. But if we've got all three, it's tremendous. That's our prayer for what we'd be together. How would you do it? How could we do it? Well, three challenges. Do at least one of the three, if not two or three of the three. Join a community group, host a community group, lead a community group. Join a community group. It's groups of 15 or 20 people scattered around the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area who meet together to do life the way the Thessalonians could, to get connected to each other. Be tenacious about it. These groups meet either twice a month or sometimes every week. And don't just go when it happens to be convenient. Go unless there's just no way to avoid skipping. Lean into life tenaciously with other people. It's always easy to find an excuse. Be tenacious about it. And be authentic about it. Roll in in a baseball cap and sweats without your makeup on. It's really okay. Show up the way you really are. Let people dig under the surface to see the real you, not the Facebook you. Join a community group. Second, if we're going to do this, we need a lot of places for these groups to meet. Consider opening your home and hosting a community group. Put the door open either twice a month or four times a month and let people from our church just come in and share life together. It's okay the house isn't cleaned up. That's called authenticity. That's called vulnerability. It's the way the house usually looks, so be vulnerable. And then consider leading one of these. If we're going to do this and be this to each other, We need a lot of spark plugs. We need a lot of people who will say, yes, let's do this, and I'm happy to help lead. If you're happy to help lead, we'll pair you with a host so you don't bear the whole bunch. But let's get in together, and let's live life together deeply. It's what transformed the church in Thessalonica. It'd be amazing to see how it might transform us. And let's pray that it would. Let's pray. Father, we um, pray that you would... in in an endless number of creative ways, through our community groups, but also through many other ways, build us into deep community. Pray that you'd give us a spirit that would be tenacious about that, that won't give up on it. Pray that you'd give us a spirit that would be authentic about that, that would show people who we really are, that would be vulnerable, that would let people go below the surface. Give us the courage to be that for each other and with each other, in your gospel. Would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.